everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Rise Up, Voices from the Frontlines. And I am your host, Krista Fee, and I am very excited to bring to you today's guest, Stephen Nisbet, who is going to share with you his personal story of triumph over trauma and the transformational work that he is doing uh, to change the impact of the work that we do on the lives of first responders. So please welcome to the show today, Stephen Nisbet. Hello. Hello, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on the show with you. I'm really excited to share your story because you've done you've done so many things and you've had so many experiences and you're so you're so humble about your background. And I think people I think people will really connect with you and the work that you're doing is exceptional and important. And I just really want to help you get the word out uh, about what you're doing. So I love to start at the beginning. So talk about your childhood a little bit and what made you interested in going into the military? Sure. No, thank you again for having me on here and, uh, and just giving us a platform to to, to hopefully reach folks that, that are in your audience that uh, potentially might have some trouble or struggling with anything that's going on in their personal lives. Um, to start, you know, I, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, born in Colorado. Uh, my dad spent several years in the military as security forces and then got out and went and became a police officer. And he spent about 30 years in the law enforcement industry mostly working gangs. Um, and so that was my childhood growing up was, was my dad was a cop. He was gone for a lot of Christmases or, or, you know, soccer games and things like that. And he was doing the duty of protecting others. And I never knew the experiences he had. I didn't like, he never brought any of it home um, and never talked about really too much what was going on. And I, I know my mom listened to the police scanner quite often and, um, I always thought it was pretty cool, but I didn't understand it at all. Um, I didn't really dive into it, and, and I really wish I did a little bit more. But um, played soccer growing up, um, really was looking forward to, to potentially playing in college. Um, I thought I was pretty decent, pretty decent athlete. Um, but this high school that I went to, it's it, we didn't perform very well, and it wasn't like anyone was coming out to scout out Santa Rita High School in Tucson, Arizona uh, as a potential, you know, to go to these different schools and yeah I didn't didn't have a lot of money growing up so we I didn't get a scholarship to, to the U of A like a lot of my friends did didn't have the money to pay for college to go there and so I did a year in uh, Pima Community College um, and I was very interested in space still am uh, I, the space just fascinates me as far as stars and pretty much just everything that, that is involved with space and as I took an astronomy class and I looked around at the people around me, I was like, this is not my demographic. Like as much as I enjoy space, it was not my people. It was, it was just a different crowd. And I was like, there is got, this is not purposeful for me. Um, I got to find something else. And I talked to my dad about joining the military and he was like, well, you're going to join, join the air force. You're going to treat it best that way. So the pathway was to do join, join the Air Force, do four years, and then join my friends. You know, I was going to do a job that was going to get me into engineering, which is what my friends all did, and, and they're all engineers now. And I was like, 
man, I'm going to go back and work for Raytheon like like they do. And we can meet up and be pals again. Um, and went to a recruiter's office and I scored pretty pretty good on the ASVAB. And like, well, you can do pretty much whatever you want. And uh, I selected a nuclear weapons apprentice. And I was like, that's the job. That's the one that's going to get me the pathway where I want to go, get free schooling with the GI Bill along the way, and, uh, and then meet my, my pals at the end. And as I stepped out of the office, out of that the Air Force recruiter's office, there's an army recruiter next door. And he's like, hey, let me talk to you, son. And I was like, ah, I'm good, man. I already signed. And uh, he's like, hey, you want to be in special forces? And I stopped. And was, my spidey senses went off. And I was like, man, I've never thought of that. Well, I hear what you got to say. And I listened to him. And I've never considered myself in that regard as far as what he was throwing at me. And I was like, man, that sounds really cool. And a $25,000 signing bonus for 50 years. Like, I might do that. And I was like, hang on a second, I might be right back. So I walked over to the Air Force recruiter and I said, hey, do you guys have special operations jobs? And he said, yeah, but you wouldn't make it. Like, you're not going to make it. It's a 90% attrition rate. You already got your job picked out. Just stick with what you got. And I was like, how about you let me decide that and let me see what you have. And then he had two jobs, combat control and pararescue. And I looked them both up, didn't understand really either one of them. Pararescue is one that involves medicine and i was like i'm not really into medicine combat control sounds a little bit more combat oriented and i was like that sounds pretty fun i'm gonna do that so i started training for that and as i started training for that and i go to take the, the past test the physical ability and stamina test they say well, all right which one are you gonna do and i said well what do you mean like one has a swim at the end and one has a swim at the beginning and I was like, well, i've been training with swim at the beginning and all right i'll do that and so i didn't think there was any difference and then i finished the test and they're like, okay, you're going to be a PJ. And I was like, what? I thought I was going to be a combat controller. Like, it's the same thing. You're going to get to the to, to boot camp. You're going to go to in-dock. And then you get to choose whatever you want there. It's the same thing. And I, was like, and I believed them. And uh, and then I was I was duped. And uh, <laughs> I, I go to MEPS and I join and I, and I do the whole uh, show up to basic training. And I realize I've just signed up to become a pararescue man or a PJ. And that is not the pathway that I was specifically training for and looking for. And I was like, I thought that I could change whatever I wanted into something else. And, and it was not that way. And they used to have combat control in doc and pararescue indoctrination course in the same pipeline, but they had split apart. And these recruiters, they don't have that insight. So he was only telling me what he had, was familiar with on TV or whatever other people were telling him. And it was not that way. Um, so I joined um, really to try to meet up with my buddies at the end. And then in spite of somebody telling me that I couldn't do something, I went up and started doing the thing they told me I couldn't do. And then uh, joined so I had to become a, a PJ. And, and uh, here I am today. <laughs> here I am today. <laughs> so what what was the job like for you what what was that journey uh the, the good and the bad yeah so uh showed up to indoc and and indoc for those that don't know and, and pj's job is um, the easiest way to describe it without getting into a lot of detail is essentially the air force's version of what a navy seal is only it's very oriented towards medical response or, or, or paramedicine um, so we still jump out of planes still fly in helicopters fast rope uh, dive both closed circuit and open circuit 
to do all of the special operations duties, but we were very focused on rescue and recovery efforts. So um, the first part of training is your selection course. It was 12 weeks long. We started with 120 people. And at the end of that whole pipeline finished with just 12 of us original uh, folks that started with the pipeline then. And um, it was, you know, that selection course is a very water confidence oriented. You know, when they talk about drown proofing and they're trying to drown you, I think that's essentially what it was. Is I was being drowned for a good 10 weeks, 12 weeks, um, you know, doing underwaters, uh, you know, the length of the pool, swimming underwater with you know, a cadre and instructors jumped at throwing stuff in the pool, beat me up. Um, and you had certain tests to, to pass, buddy breathing, uh, massive storm recovery, ditch and dance, so all these different things that are very water oriented. And really it's to apply stress and to see if you're going to, quit in a high stress environment to see how you react in these high stress environments. And it's also a pre scuba because you do all those things before you go into scuba diving. Um, and so my first, that, that 10 weeks, my first 12 weeks in the military of that in-doc course, our course in 2006, we had a, a combat rescue officer trainee going through and he ended up passing away during our course, during one of the um, iterations of water confidence training. Uh, instructors pulled up and we jumped in the water had to do a front we did a bunch of exercises so heart rates jacked up and they're like all right stand at the end of the pool in the deep end jump in the water do a front flip underwater swim to the other side of the pool underwater and back and uh, complete your, your swim and as we're standing at the edge everyone's heart is like you know heart rates at like 120 130 and <laughs> looking like no way are we making this and somebody was like hey i don't think this is a good idea and like just enter the water and i was like well i'm gonna pass out you know this this is i just accepted it so jumped in did my front flip there was a bench in the pool and uh me and one of the other guys and we grabbed this bench and we looked at each other and, we're, and we thought when we pull this we're gonna launch and instead as we pulled the bench and try to sw swim forward the bench instead flew back and hit the wall behind us and we went zero forward we didn't go forward at all and i was like I just wasted all of that energy. All of that, that one stroke is gone. And I like needed every bit of energy and, and, you know, controlling or at least uh, oxygen um, conservation as possible. So started swimming, got about halfway there. And I was like, I'm just going to pop up and I'm just going to take some air, uh, which is, you know, frowned upon there. And, and as I looked to my right, I saw somebody just getting hit, smashed by one of the instructors because he had popped up and, and was getting air, right? Not completing the task. And I was like, well, nope, not doing that because that looks miserable. And then touched the wall, come back, and then got to the end. When I got to the end, I was like, you start to black out. You know, the first thing you do is start to lose perception of everything around you. Um, the walls start caving in, so to speak. And so as everything started going black, um, I ended up hitting the wall at the other end with my head came up, gave the I feel fine sergeant sign, and then I see the instructor at the end of the, of the pool, you know, doing snapping and pointing in the pool, and one of the guys at the very beginning, when he jumped in, he did his front flip and passed out. So he'd been un underwater, passed out unconscious that entire swim, which usually takes about a minute. Um, and so one of the most incredible feats of strength I've ever seen, one of the instructors dove in, 
grabbed him. This guy was not a light, light dude. He was probably 245 pounds, grabbed him and sh- like from the bottom of this nine foot pool in one motion, just pushed him up and threw him onto the pool deck. Um, and then he was in cardiac arrest. They started CPR on him, um, defibrillated him, got him in an ambulance. He had come back. And then when he got to the hospital, he ended up passing away there. And so that was my first experience with loss in my military career. And for me, that was, uh, you know, I was telling myself like, okay, like I was prepared for this. Like, this is my, this is essentially what we got. What I got into this for is dealing with things like this to come along. And, uh, and I didn't realize later in life and later throughout my career that that very loss would be compounded with several other losses throughout my career and, and ultimately lead to my, my medical retirement and, and diagnosis with PTSD. It's always interesting how um, they sneak back up on us. There's mm-hmm. like, I worked in medical for, for many years and the cases that bother me now didn't bother me then it was not until i stopped it wasn't until i stopped with the adrenaline and stopped with the being needed and stopped with the 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 constant um stimulation of the job that it hit me did you you said it accumulated for you did you feel like it bothered you early on or did it just kind of bother you at the end all at the same time uh, I, I could tell it was starting to get to me, but more so. So after that training pipeline and, and I started going to my units, I went to the 320th SPS on Okinawa, Japan, did uh, the mainland uh, uh, Japan business, like tsunami disaster with a, a, a nuclear reactor uh, meltdown, Fukushima and everything. So I worked, uh, tried to work some recoveries out of there. Um, deployed a, a couple times to Afghanistan with some joint task forces. Went to the rescue squadron, deployed there several times, and did some some casavac, some casualty evacuation stuff. Uh, very point of injury, and and you know, for those it was a phone or like you have a radio and they you know make a scramble call and you have eight minutes to get off the ground and fly to wherever you're going. Don't know what to expect when you get there. You have a, a nine line that says the injuries, who who it is, what the injuries are. Uh, and, and their condition pretty much. And so you just have to be ready to receive whatever it is. And doing 10 of those a day for four to five months straight uh, is kind of wears on you more so. The adrenaline rush, dump. Adrenaline rush, dump. And then so you're going up, up and down. And after these deployments, I would come back from, from deploying. And, and my decompressed time was I do, I would tell my family, I'm not going anywhere. I don't. I have zero desire to go out somewhere for the first two weeks of coming back. If I go somewhere and I hear somebody complaining about foods that's being serviced to them, um, that they don't have to make themselves, they don't have to worry about somebody like rockets incoming, they don't have to worry about you know anybody shooting at them or anything like that. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my mind if somebody complains about something so minuscule and small. They have a right to do so, and it just I could tell those things were were building up that frustration <clears throat> and then having several of my friends get killed on deployments, killed in training, um, things like that. And really it came to on my ninth deployment that I was distant from my family. I couldn't remember people I'd known for a long period of time. Um, I was, I had anxiety. Um, I would have irritable outbursts constantly. 
Um, and then ultimately my wife had come to me and said, Hey, your, your kids are afraid of you. Um, and it was specifically after an incident where I yelled at the, the kids, you know, and I, I was overboard with yelling at them and, and really intimidating them. And, um, every time afterwards of things like that, I would obviously feel ashamed and, uh, the way that I would make my kids feel. And I'm supposed to be this rock, this person that, that they can come to and, and protect them. And yet they're the ones, I'm the one that they fear the most. And so that hit me hard. And, and I, when my wife told me that, she told me at the right time. And I was like, okay, something's, or something, I have to do something about this. This clearly isn't normal. And I, and I thought about the symptoms of PTSD or PTSI or PTS, whoever, or however you want to describe it. And, um, I thought, I don't have those. You know, you, I watch them on TV and, and whatnot. It's like, I'm not waking up in the middle of the night, like sweating and like trying to uh, you know, pull out a gun or choking my wife or anything. Like, I'm not doing those things. Uh, I'm not uh, having these wild flashbacks where I'm crawling around on the floor and stuff. I'm not doing any, like, I don't disappear into a different world when I disappear. It's just, I'm just zoned out. Like, I push my kids on the swing and then realize that, like, my kids aren't on the swing anymore and I'm still pushing it. Um, those kinds of things, but I'm not thinking about it. I'm just zoned out. Uh, my brain has shut off. And so I, I emailed my psychologist embedded in my unit. Uh, I was like, what do people call, come to you and talk to you about? Like, I don't even know where to start. And then we set up a meeting and then I was very resistant. And then ultimately she asked some questions about my sleep. Um, she asked questions about memory, about things in the past and whatnot. And she was like, well, well, we can take some tests and whatnot, but until you have some pretty severe PTSD that, that needs to be addressed. Uh, and so it was um, periods of time, just to answer your question in a very long way, um, that it compounded um, in the times when I wasn't at work actively being stimulated, when I was at home with my family, is when it really piled on. And, and you know, like we say, in our in in our nonprofit is the families see it the first see it, see it the most and they see it first because we're not stimulated. I would back then I would have rather been getting shot at and in combat than being around my kids crying. Um, I was taking every deployment and every trip I could possibly be on, and I was doing those specifically so I can just get away from something I was so uncomfortable with, which was my family life, and that's what that what leads to destruction. And folks not knowing how to deal with a normal life with their family, and and I feel like a lot of folks in, in the first responder community and and uh, the veteran community can can resonate with that. I think I think we get lost in the conversation about post traumatic stress disorder and the diagnostic criteria, and you know these are the symptoms, and then this is what it looks like, and we forget that people experience things in different ways. And we also don't talk about disassociation, which is mentioned, of course, in the diagnostic criteria, but it's not as common as, yeah. it, you know, everyone goes, oh, I'm going to be angry. Oh, I'm going to be mad at everybody. And I'm going to be depressed. And I'm going to want to kill myself. Like, that's kind of the model that, that most people who aren't really studying it kind of expect to see. So these, these subtle shifts in in withdrawing uh from from the people that we love are often uh, not perceived as post-traumatic stress and 
like you said earlier, the conversation, we always just go, oh, post-traumatic stress, PTSI, whatever we're going to call it at this point. But what we're really talking about is accumulations of occupational and traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And it may or may not be, it's a spectrum. I mean, we all have trauma, we all have experiences, we all lie on this continuum somewhere. Um, how does our brain adapt? How did our nervous system adapt? What changes in our neurochemistry have happened? And that's what results in all of those symptoms. So it's not, it's not that you're just behaving like a jerk. You know, you're being all, all angry and you're not able to, to treat your kids appropriately. It's literal chemical, physical changes in your body and in your mind. And, and those are hard to notice. Those are hard to perceive from the inside out. So Yes, absolutely. Family notices first. What kind of things did your wife in the earlier days before it was like really apparent when you needed to go see, seek out treatment? Did she try uh, to express to you that you were changing? Yeah, uh, I think, um, you know, the, the natural tendency, especially for, for uh, folks like, like me and, and my you know, community. Is to get angry to, to be like no i'm not i'm just being normal you know especially if i'm being too hard on kids she, she would and be afraid to tell me walk on eggshells be afraid to tell me that i'm being too hard on the kids and then my response would be like i'm just being a dad you know this that's just like they need a dad they need a strong uh, personality a strong father uh, figure in their lives to to correct them in certain ways and and there are some aspects where like yes i agree that there is a, like they need to have discipline in their lives but to, but to the extent of where where I would go and where I know some of my you know friends and teammates and, and people in my position where it gets overboard um, as far as like you know how fast the irritability lights up you know rather than it's easy to tell the kids no like no I'm not going to do that no we're not going to go out and do these fun things because I don't feel like it because I just want to sit and do nothing um, and that I try to start being more aware of and, and she would mention those things of. You know, we're not we're not able to go out and do these things because you never want to do anything. You always want to sit at home. Like, well, because I don't want like I, I'm not comfortable being out in these places. And and, you know, the other thing is she would say I'm paranoid, paranoid about everything. And actually I was because my job surrounded me, surrounded me with death. Um, you know, every single way that somebody could possibly pretty much die, burning alive, being blown up, shot, you know, traumatically getting hit by cars, things like that. Like. Um, we weren't just treating uh, Americans overseas; we were treating every, everybody. Um, and, and a lot of times, there was kids that were getting, you know, injured in some way uh, overseas, and it would make me very hyper aware of how fast death and serious harm can come to somebody, and and how fragile life was. So my paranoia was anytime the kids were outside. Um, that all I could visualize was them getting hit by a car or somebody taking them or um, if, or if they went to a friend's house and they had a pool, like they're drowning. Like that's the, I couldn't focus on anything else than that itself, um, that there were something bad was going to come their way. So um, she tried to, to point that out to me and uh, it just wasn't, it was, it was hard for me to accept. That's such a hard one. I still struggle with that, that uh, you have seen it. So you know the risks. And 
we live in a society where ignorance is bliss, right? People don't think, they go about their daily lives not realizing the risks that they're taking. Right. But there comes a point where when you've seen it, you go, oh, wait, that is a real risk. That can actually happen. And then you start putting a list in your head of all the things that can actually happen. So have you managed to have you managed to step back from that and internally, not just with the behavioral changes where you go, oh, I, I shouldn't be worried about this. I shouldn't be telling everybody that this is a possibility. But have you managed to calm that internal dialogue? Because uh, I, honestly, I still struggle with that internal dialogue of, well, this is dangerous. And that's a thing you probably shouldn't do. And this is what can happen. And this is why <laughs> that's a bad idea. Uh, being that person that's like, let me tell you all the reasons why not to do that. <laughs> I uh, I wouldn't say, I mean, it'll never go away. That, that paranoia uh, will never go away. Um, what I do now um, is I become more prepared. And I, that's what I tell my wife. I, I'm, I'm not paranoid, I'm prepared. Um, so I'm not going to restrict, I don't restrict the kids from doing something, but I'm prepared for when things go wrong. Something I like to, uh, well, I don't like to, but I feel um, that I am just surrounded by a black cloud of doom. Like something is going to go wrong around me. And I took my daughter to the hospital just a couple weeks ago for just smashing up her face, doing something I knew was going to happen at some point with her riding her scooter like 20 miles an hour down the, the hill in front of the house. And, and uh, she bit the dust one day and just really had a gash on her chin so several things go wrong like that where it's like okay i knew that was going to happen she is fine but i'm prepared and i run through these scenarios um, not unlike anybody you know in my position especially law enforcement fire uh veterans just running through scenarios in your head of like if this happened what am i going to do um and you know whether it's healthy or not it helps me because then I can, I have the answers beforehand, and that's what I would do in my job when I was as a, when I was a PJ. I would go through everything that could possibly happen. If the if the helicopter, our our uh, you know wingman helicopter, or the the paired helicopter that we fly to ship, if the other helicopter went down, I would go through that in my head, and what would that look like? How would I extricate my friends out of there? What am I going to do? And I would. I would run through all these all the time. Like if we're on the range, if somebody gets shot, what am I going to do? If this building gets hit with rockets, what are we going to do? Like those are constantly going through my head, so that when it does happen, if it happens, it's not the first time I've thought of it, and I and I have at least a foundation of what I'm going to do. Um, I don't think that answers your question, but <laughs> no, that was great. <laughs> yeah, but I I just I just become more prepared. I don't stop them from doing stuff. I just become more prepared. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I had to go with it too. Was I can't I can't be interfering with other people living their lives. I mm -hmm. want people to have joyful lives, full of experiences. Uh, and my my stress and my anxiety can only be focused on making sure that outcomes are as positive as possible. Right. <laughs> so, are you still are you still in the service? I am not. Nope. I, I medically retired um, two years ago in 2021 um, after with the diagnosis of PTSD uh, after you know, my 10th deployment and, uh, and several, in an accident that took place uh, while I was team leader. 
and uh, and that really kind of led me down the pathway of, of this is not the job for me anymore. I, I not that I lost confidence in myself as in skill wise and whatnot because I've still been tested as a PJ just in my daily life when things go wrong around me, but it's not something I want to actively I wanted to actively do anymore. I didn't want to put myself in a dangerous situation anymore that pulled me away from my family. You know, I, I, my son's thirteen now. And over that the past 16 years, I've missed nine of his birthdays. Um, so now that I'm out of the military and uh, I have the opportunity to spend more time with my children and learn who they are. And that's what I've done. I've spent a lot of time learning who my oldest son is, who I've spent most of his life. I spent away from him. Uh, and now I have an opportunity to, to give that back or you know, make up for that lost time. You talk about family and a lot of folks, a lot of folks in the military and in the first responder lifestyles um, struggle with their significant other relationship. The statistics on divorce are absolutely like, offensive. <laughs> we're depending on where you're looking. I mean, we're seeing eight, over 80 percent is some of the suggestions. So are you still married uh, to to your wife? I am. Yeah. And I, and I had. Um... You know, I recently did a panel about um, just my experiences with, with you know, the animal that transition of getting out and then just how um, the traumas have affected me and uh, and my marriage and my, my life. Um, and so fortunately, my wife didn't leave me, um, even though I gave her a lot of opportunities to. Um, and I have an opportunity to rebuild a relationship uh, with my entire family. And... I would say an individual came up to me and asked, like, hey, what, when your wife said that your kids were scared of you, like, what did you do? And the, at the moment I was in, and the best advice I can give to somebody that's in that position is listen. It's easy to go right back to, like, no, I'm not. This is just who I'm normal. But if this individual who knows you and you got into a relationship early on, especially before the career or at the middle of your career, wherever you are, they knew you the way you were and they saw some changes. And you may not notice those changes, but if you just take a second and put the ego aside and listen to this person who's telling you you're not acting normal, there's an opportunity for growth there and there's an opportunity to, to heal um, a relationship that's, that is something that they valued at some point. I think a lot of our demographic seeks excitement outside of their relationship for uh, different reasons. Number one, they're ashamed of the things that they've done in in service, and they don't feel they deserve the life they currently have. They don't feel like they, de they deserve the person who stood next to them this entire time. Um, it's easier to be hated than to be loved. Um, so those are things that uh, folks in our position, they go and seek that attention somewhere else or they're not feeling validated um, if they can find a way to say hey i'm not being heard or appreciated the way that i feel like i need to and let's say somebody else is giving me that attention uh, they're going to go seek out that attention from somebody else or something else whether it's alcohol drugs or persons people um, so my biggest advice in a relationship is to put the ego aside and listen to each other without emotions. As hard as that is to do.
Right. So for you, what was the transition phase like? What was coming out of that career and having all that time on your hands? How did that how did that progress for you? Uh, yeah, so I was transitioning out. Um, I had about a year pretty much. I told my boss I'm not showing up to work for, for the last year of my career as I transitioned out. And I told him, hey, I'm not going to be a liability to you, but I'm also not going to serve you any good here because I have things that I want to do when I get out. And um, I think folks in our position, when they're transitioning out of any career they've done most of their entire adult life, that becomes their identity. And a lot of times you lead conversations with, I am this, I am a police officer, a firefighter, a PJ, or you know, a Green Beret, whatever it is. And then you start to realize people in the civilian world that you transition into a regular civilian life don't care. Like they, they honestly like, they're like, oh, like I told them about hostage rescue missions I've done and, and this and that, like them being a company I was interning for. And the people were great and they're, and, and they're outstanding. Um, and they were listening to me like, wow, oh, that was incredible. Like, what a real crazy story. The like, things that you've experienced are crazy. Okay, back to the business. And then it was just back to normal. And it was like, okay, well, I got the validation I was looking for, but I didn't, it wasn't, it was short-lived. And it was like, oh, these people aren't essentially worshiping me for what I've done. They're not doing anything extra. They're, they're just, you know, thanks for the story. And then they're back to their daily lives as if, I didn't even tell them the story. So that was a wake up call of like, all right, I need to stop hanging my hat on what I used to do and thinking about what I'm going to do next. What am I going to do next? What am I going to take the lessons I've learned in the career that I had and either do it for myself and for my family or do it for good or do it for both? Or, or how do I, how do I navigate this next pathway in my life? Uh, and, and really a lot of that was taking time off. You know, I, like I said, I took a year off and focused on who I was. Uh, because at the end of the day, what I like to tell folks is you, the second that I pretty much stopped showing up to work or, or was no longer team leader of the team and those guys are still deploying and training and whatnot, and I'm, the next day I'm off the, the, the team thread. I'm off the, the, the text chain and they have their business tech, text chain to talk about training and whatnot. And I was like, oh, okay. So I guess I just have my family. And that's the only piece of people that are there left to pick up the pieces. When you get out, my old unit's not going to be there asking how I'm doing. My A lot of my friends are going to be too busy to worry about how I'm doing. Um, so the only people that are there are my family. So that's why I invest a lot of time in the family. A lot of time into who I'm gonna be uh, and what I wanted to do next. So that's the best part of the story. What are you doing now? <laughs> um, I it, uh, not what I really set out to do. What I set out to do when I transitioned, um, briefly, the reason one of the biggest reasons I got out is that I was the team leader of our group of guys, our group of PJs and combat controllers, part of our, our training is to do mountain rescue or and rock climbing. We went to Boise, Idaho to do some rock climbing. As we were out there um, really doing a team building trip and, and some skills development, one of our uh, folks as uh, team members, as he placed an anchor, 
we're getting to the top of a 70 foot face after a, a good rock climb. All of us are up there, uh, finishing up the last climb of the day. And first guy goes down the rappel line after we climb up. He sets up a rappel line. First guy gets down, and as I'm doing some instruction, the second guy starts his rappel and gets about halfway down, and the anchor uh, or the rock that the anchor is in fails. So the rock shatters um, with the camming uh, devices and, nut, and a nut that's in there. Uh, and so when it fails, the guy that's on the roof fell 30 feet. And one of our other guys was tied into the anchor on the top with his piece of uh, kit and, and rope. And the weight of one of our team members pulled the other one off the top of the cliff. And so one fell 30 feet, and one fell about 70 feet and impacted the ground below. And went down with the team, and we treated him as best we could for you know, between 25 and 30 minutes before the fire department showed up. And, and ultimately, um, with the injuries he sustained on impact, he, he died and passed away there in the sink. And so that was really um, – the most challenging loss I've ever experienced. And I lost a lot of friends and teammates and treated them. Uh, but this one was stateside in training. Uh, what are, we're talking about where we're going to go for dinner that night. And so it was un, so quick and un, unsuspected. And, and it was like, I didn't even have a chance. Like all the other teammates and, and friends, like I was able to treat them and there was an opportunity to get them to save them. And with him, it was like I would felt so helpless and lost um, that I couldn't do, I couldn't save him, and I couldn't treat him the way I wanted to, and get him to the hospital. And and I felt a lot of guilt and shame, and that I still do that. You know, he wasn't even really on my particular team; he was a guest from somebody else's team that I was tagging along. And so I felt like a you know a parent who had another child in their house and that other child passed away. And so those other team leaders and team members trusted me with you know, keeping him safe. And I couldn't do that. And even more so his family. So uh, that was a really, really challenging time, which led to my, my, uh, my pathway out. And as I was looking at my pathway out, I had utilized our resources at our unit, which was our psychologists, our strength conditioning coaches, our physical therapists, dietitians, really trying to do everything I can to make sure that I'm okay. And, and you know, doing everything I can to, to take care of myself and my family. And at the, I came to the realization, I'm going to lose those resources. So I'm going to be stuck to the VA and being in a special operations world, I'm used to a certain, uh, quality of care and, and it was easily accessible and I was going to lose that quality of care and I was going to be treated like everybody else and that didn't sit well with me. I was going to be stuck in the VA system um, and I, I just thought there's there's certainly a better way and so as I looked at the resources out there, current nonprofits, current organizations and nothing was doing it the way that we had it at our unit and I thought I've got to create something. So ultimately asked um, Dr. Jennifer Byrne, um, who's a spouse of somebody in our, in our community, and she's a, a doctor of occupational therapy. I said, hey, she has the same passion as me. Will you help me start up this nonprofit to service you know, veterans and first responders that are suffering with the things that I suffered with or dealing with the same traumas I've been dealing with and get them a similar quality of care to what I've received that helped me significantly? So 
started up Shields and Stripes, um, the Shields being those that wear the badge of you know, law enforcement and fire, and then Stripes are for your military. Um, and typically your military career fields are enlisted and they typically have the, the Stripes um, involved in, that, in those uh, enlisted career fields as their ranks. And uh, so started the, that nonprofit, asked Exos, which is a, a pro performance company um, that typically works with professional athletes, they also work with special operations athletes or special operations members to do rehab, physical rehab and recovery, had a relationship with them after a shoulder injury and said, hey, can we use your facility, bring in veterans and first responders in there and get them some high quality care. And they, they agreed to it. And uh, so we've been doing that for two years now, two years this month, and bring in eight veterans and first responders into the Exos facility where they get a strength conditioning program they get a dietitian uh, consult and meals made on site for them specifically. PT, so physical therapy, occupational therapy, massage, yoga, and then they get their psych therapy, their individual and group therapy. Uh, additionally, we've partnered with TheraBody, which they provide products to our cohorts, uh, TheraGuns, smart goggles, and then another partnership with Big Fish Foundation, who they provide physical therapy kits for when they leave there, when they leave Exos, here's a kit to do continued physical therapy because once they're there for three weeks at Exos, um, they leave and we want to make sure that that care continues on, that they're doing the right things, that the stuff that they learned in person. And so it's another nine weeks of telehealth and they still have a strength coach, they still have a, a dietitian, they still have a physical therapist and a psychologist working with them and their family to incorporate everything they learned in person now at home. And so it's a three month total program, completely free to the veteran and the first responder. And uh, it's just been continually growing ever since. So yeah, that's what I do now. I love your mission. I love your mission and I love what you do. Um, you're right in line with, with us and what we'd like to see in the future. Uh, it's very, it's very interesting that you take it from the standpoint that you do with the, the whole person, whole lifestyle, but you come from such intensive training that the importance of that physicality is, is really dominant in your programming. And uh, there's a lot to say for that physical wellness. And it, it gets neglected when we have these conversations about post-traumatic stress. We, we talk a lot about mental health and we talk about mental wellness, but we don't talk about the ways that our bodies actually are affected and the things that we can do to to prevent the negative outcomes so it's wonderful to see a program that's actually addressing you know food matters You're right mm -hmm. lifestyle matters intensity of physical exercise matters and providing tools for people it's it's a beautiful thing yeah precisely i think uh, a lot of us you know when we are struggling and, and um just figuring out our ways, how do we deal with some of these traumas or we're holding it in. And a lot of us, we wear it on our bodies. We stop eating healthy. We start drinking more, not sleeping very good. I, I, I imagine you know, 90 to hundred percent of us in our positions are, have some sort of sleep apnea, whether it's mild or severe at 30 years old, I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. I'm not obese, not overweight. I don't have, any other conditions, I just stop. My my body stops breathing at night, and I don't know why. We know that it's just the traumas that we've experienced, and so have some uh, you know along those nightmares. So all these things compound, and 
usually we wear it on our bodies. And if you can start eating healthy and you can start moving right the way that you used to, you had an academy, you had a boot camp where you had to be physically fit at some some point. Well, let's get you back to that to that drive. Let's get you back to where you used to be so you can feel good, not not now, not for the job, but for your family. I think there's an element of self-value there too, is if we let ourselves go, especially if we're feeling guilt and shame, we let ourselves go, then we don't have to value ourselves. We don't have to say, you know, oh, you know, I love myself. I love this body. I, I can do all these things with my body. It lets there be more excuses to hate oneself. It lets there be more reasons to go, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I, I should just disappear. So creating that foundation uh, of self-love without talking about it in ways that, you know, self-love kinds of ways. <laughs> You're doing it in a very masculine, uh, very, very culturally appropriate way to reach yeah. those you most want to reach. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're, you're exactly right. I think a lot of our folks, um, you know, that they don't, they feel like they don't deserve, you know, the, the care that they get. Um, you know, I'd also say, you know, one, one piece of advice for the folks that are out there that are listening, um, one of the pitfalls we have is comparing, comparing traumas. Um, more often than not, I hear, you know, first responders say, well, I haven't, I haven't seen the stuff that you've seen. You know, I'm, I just, no, there's no way mine could match yours. And I'm like, ah. like you got to get out of that mentality. Um, everybody experiences things differently. And uh, I also haven't seen the things that they've seen. You know, so going and and uh, to domestic violence uh, calls and or uh, car accidents where where the entire family killed or or digging up bodies that have been buried in shallow graves. Like I haven't seen those. Um, and if and if I have, I haven't seen it in my hometown where I'm living. I'm not, uh, I don't drive by the places that I experienced trauma overseas. I don't, those aren't down the street for me 10 minutes down the road. And I don't have people wondering where I live at night to, to potentially come and break into my house and harm me and my family. Um, so those are the things that I don't have to, to particularly worry about and they do. So um, I would highly advise, you know, those first responders out there that, that do, and, and other veterans that do make comparisons like that, don't do that. Uh, everybody experiences it in their own way. Um, and, and this is your, your time to get the help that you need. How many cohort, cohorts do you do every year? For right now, we don't do two. Um, it does cost about $15,000 to put one person through it. Um, and that covers all their travel, their, their lodging. They stay in a nice resort hotel. Um, and then it covers the um, actual therapy itself uh, with our clinicians and the, the providers there at Exos. Um, so it does cost quite a bit. It's, it is three months um, and we do eight at a time. So it's about $115,000, $120,000, up to $150,000 per cohort. Just depending on the time of year and then where, where the economy's at, especially with travel. Um, but we do two a year right now, and that's only dependent upon funds. The goal is to do nine a year um, using three different Exos facilities, so hosting three cohorts per facility uh, per year. So that's the goal. Hopefully, we can reach that uh, sometime soon so we can pretty much uh, quadruple our numbers that are going through our cohorts. Um, we, we are in the process of innovating new ways to, to reach more people. 
Awesome. Okay, everybody out there, if you would like to get in touch with Stephen, if you'd like to know more about his organization, we will put a link. Uh, depending on where you are viewing this podcast, it will either be below the podcast or above the podcast in the description. So is there any last words that you would like to give people? Uh, what's what's your favorite quote or your favorite words of wisdom? Um, I don't have a favorite quote. Well, I do. But it's more leadership. Um, I lead people because uh, I want to be a leader. Um, people follow me because they want to, not because they have to. So I want to, that's the type of leader that, that I would like to be. And I would encourage anybody out there that that's the motto they should live by, especially in their leadership role. But, you know, last words of wisdom for, for folks out there is, is much the same. Of set your ego aside. Um, people want you here. Usually people take their lives um, and it's a five second you know, decision. It's a decision that's made it over a small period of time where it's, it's very emotional. So um, please seek out some help, whether it's through us or, or many other nonprofits, organizations that are out there. Um, there are other ways to solve problems. Um, so no, never give up, don't quit, um, just stay in the fight. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me, it's my pleasure. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode of Rise Up Voices from the Frontlines. Again, if you'd like to support Stephen's organization, uh, Shields and Stripes, we will add the link for that. And if you'd like to support Battle to Be, our 501c3 that, that runs this podcast, you can do that as well at battletobe.org. That's B-A-T-T-L-E, the number two, B-E.org. And I look forward to seeing you all next week for our next episode of Rise Up, Voices from the Frontline.